0: Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSE and the host of the CSE podcast show. And I've got another great guest today. I've got Dan Ritchie, who wears a lot of hats. He's currently the senior information security officer at Frequentis Defense. He's the senior system security engineer at Frequentis Defense. He's got another title there that, that, that we're not talking about. He's also the founder of the ICS Advisory Project. And if you don't know Dan, he is also a military vet. He is a founder of a variety of things, one of which we'll get to. He's a musician. He's a scuba diver near and dear to my heart, and he is a data hound. He uh, loves data and doing things with it, which we'll also talk about. So welcome to the show, Dan.
1: Thank you, Derek. I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, Dan, uh, I always uh, start sort of with the same shtick that's that, that cybersecurity people are modern-day superheroes, and you've all got, you know, all superheroes have some sort of backstory. Where, where did you get created? <laughs> Not literally, but where are you from?
1: Uh, I'm from Park Forest, Illinois. Uh, it's a very small town in the south suburbs of Chicago, very close to the border of Indiana.
0: Uh, well, then we both grew up there. I grew up in Indiana, so we're, you know, neighbors, so to speak, in the Midwest there. So um, talk to me about um, any influence uh, early in your life, if there was any, on technology, computers. Is there anything in that early stage before you um, go off and leave home?
1: Uh, my dad was a big tinker, he was a musician he was like kind of a jack-of-all-trades before he passed away when i was 11 so but i remember growing up with him and he would always be soldering like uh, new pots for his guitar uh he was into fishing uh so we he taught me technique with uh fishing with different lures on the rivers in uh, illinois you know we would build uh balsa wood uh aircraft uh, like our planes you know the you know flying around in the backyard or you know the whole model uh, rockets that you would build and launch in your backyard as well so yeah i think that influenced me a lot as a as a child i was always building things with blocks and legos as a kid
0: so what did you what did you do come uh come graduation uh from high school what was your first first decision
1: with with my dad passing and not having that influence in my life i think i was kind of like not quite sure which direction i was going to go so I I didn't really enjoy high school at all. I didn't enjoy school in general. So once I graduated high school, I was very much more interested in, you know, still like kind of playing music. And then I would work at a record store. And then I ended up working at a a company that was a uh, trucking company. And and I worked in their warehouse where we'd load the trucks and they would go out and make their deliveries throughout like Chicago and the region within the Midwest. So I I was really kind of doing dock work world a few years and then i realized that i wasn't going to uh really go and see the rest of the world staying in that job and i wasn't interested in going to college yet so i went and joined the navy
0: well and and i i think you know looking at your at your background we were both uh in norfolk uh virginia at the same time i got there i think in uh 90 some late 95 and so we, we were both serving in the Navy in the same, same jaggery. We could walk walk right past each other. But anyway, thank you for your service.
1: Thank, thank you, Derek. Thank you for your service as well. What did you do yeah. first? So, well, when I first, when I first joined the Navy, I, I had an idea at least where I wanted to go work. I knew I didn't want to just go on ships and just do, you know, undesignate seaman type work. So I ended up uh, going into the cryptologic field. I originally wanted to be an intel, intel specialist or intelligence specialist, and that rating was closed at the time. Basically, there was no openings for me to go into it. But I ended up becoming a CTO, which is a cryptog- cryptological technician communications or operator. And uh, I learned about telecommunications and learned to type. <laughs> I learned a lot of different skills that I didn't have a solid grasp of when I graduated high school. I. I I lead all my success to everything I learned while I was in the naval service. Being in the Navy really helped me out a lot.
0: Yeah, and you know, I always sort of um, ask people when security, you know, first pops up in their professional journey. And I know from our shared background, it's, it shows up right away. Uh, now, now it becomes professionally something you actually do. You know, like you have roles with security quite early, which I, is I think something we want to talk about. But even I know with just what you were first doing, security and just you know, I was involved with cryptography as well uh, at one point. Like security was every day, right? Um, and it's Absolutely. a certain mindset and and risk reduction was something we, we 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 would we would have thought about every you know every day.
1: Yes, I mean it was it was ingrained in you from day one. Once you go to your, your A school and they teach you. You know the basics. You have to learn that immediately. Once you're once you're uh, in your a school and they're teaching you, you know the the skills to perform your job within your rating. You know security and the security practices are on top of everything that you're doing. So you you learn that very quickly. The dos and don'ts and what will get you uh, kicked out of your rating and possibly kicked out of the Navy. So it's taken very seriously from the get go. So I mean, my introduction to security, as you said, started in the very beginning, and it was probably more focused on information security and uh, physical security early on, on top of communication security, which is a whole nother uh, field that, I mean, you know, is matured and changed a lot because of cyber. but. It, it, the essence of it's still there.
0: You started having roles with security in the name early on in your, your path. I was looking through your sort of your Navy history, and security-type work becomes from the get-go. That, that, that becomes and de- sort of defines many of your Navy years.
1: Absolutely. My entire career was, was, was totally security-focused. Yeah. Um, and the roles that I filled throughout my career were very varied in different aspects of security you know, the, my first, my first tour was very much focused on ComSec security, but then the, the second tour I was doing ComSec security, information security. I was doing information security manager work, writing system security plans, uh, you know, compu- uh, figuring access control lists on on routers and, and switches at that time. Uh, we were focused on, uh, You know, all the basics that are still the same today, you know, having a very solid asset inventory (laughs) Uh, and then uh, also worrying about uh, personnel security related uh, issues that you had to follow up as well and maintain.
0: Yeah, the broad spectrum that is security, all these different aspects. And you did incident response as well, didn't you?
1: Mm, That was uh, after my tour. Uh, as an air crewman and doing uh work, I did instant response. I was a lead instant handler for the Navy, uh doing a float and shore commands. So I I had my introduction to advanced uh, persistent threats early on uh before it was really discussed publicly.
0: So what was the, the progress? Uh you know, as you I know at the in the end you had some very specific programs you were part of and you were um you had the title Cyber Warrant Officer. Can you talk a little bit about what that program was and what what you were doing uh, in the latter part of
1: your career? So yeah, in the latter part of my career, because uh, I I went transitioned from being uh, enlisted to a chief warrant officer. I was initially an information warfare warrant officer and then converted over to cyber warrant because I was I converted to a CTN while I was uh, a uh, instant responder during that tour. And it really had me more involved in the uh, tech, the technical leadership aspect of being uh, a uh, cyber uh, security professional, uh, both looking at it from a offensive and defensive side. Uh, towards that part of my career, I was more of a project officer at the time, uh, developing capabilities, cyber capabilities for the Navy and it, and for across the DoD, so I was spending a good chunk of my time working with the, some of the national labs and working with uh, other uh, uh, military service uh, cybersecurity professionals. Very uh, cyber is very joint.
0: So let's talk. I think you know we have lots of different listeners to the show, and they come with different perspectives and different speakers. You know, speak to them. You know, we may have some uh, some folks who haven't yet joined the military, young, young, listeners, or people that are in the military, um, talking a little bit about, you know, if you reflect back to, you know, 20, more than 20 years of service and it being dominated by this area of cybersecurity, the opportunity within the military, both people who haven't entered it yet or people that are in it that might laterally move into, it, you know, what is the cybersecurity opportunity, you know, within uh, you know, at, within being, you know, within the DoD, within the military, from your perspective.
1: Yeah, I could, I could, I could mostly speak for the Navy. For the Navy, the cybersecurity opportunities are, are from when I retired in 2017. There's a lot of opportunity for either coming into the Navy as a uh, IT information technician or information system technician, sorry, that's what IT is, or coming in as a CTN. It all depends on what area you really want to focus on. <clears throat> do you want to come in and maintain information, op- information systems and securing them, doing the hands-on, or do you want to be focused on defending those systems and, uh, and doing the monitoring through intrusion detection systems and developing signatures to identify threats against those systems and also conducting the analysis. CTNs are very focused on doing the analysis, doing operations in uh, IT systems, doing red team type activity, and also doing blue team. So red teams attack, like basically pen testing, blue teams more like defend. So and, I mean, there's there, I think there's really good opportunities there.
0: Both and it's not training available, right? I mean, that's... that's so a, yeah, absolutely. Yeah
1: there's there's incredible training opportunities uh, i don't think i would have been able to get my any of my sand certifications without the opportunities i had in the navy and then also uh, there's other opportunities to get other certifications as well before you if you decide you know you don't want to make your career in the navy long term and you want to transition out to the civilian workforce i would highly recommend looking at the opportunities to serve the Navy. Because one thing that will help you in the Navy is getting hands-on experience very quickly. And having that hands-on experience and the certifications really help put you a leg up in the workforce when you're trying to, like, land that first cybersecurity job device, you know, going out, studying, get the certifications, but you don't have a ton of experience. And – but – the way the culture is changing, I, there, I think there's becoming more opportunities for people to get uh, uh, entry-level jobs with some or little experience. It all depends on the employer and them willing to take that risk. But the Navy is willing to take that risk and, and train you and get you up to speed and have that get that opportunity to gain that experience and get the certifications uh, without out-of-pocket costs a lot of times.
0: Do you know if there's uh much in the way of opportunity for lateral lateral transferring from different different areas of the navy into this area?
1: Uh, I uh, currently I can't speak on like you know what if if that's an opportunity and the, and the quotas are there that allow someone to like uh do a cross cross rate transfer from like if you're working as like a boatswain but you're heavily in security cybersecurity and you want to become a CTN I, I can't really speak on whether the, there's a lot of opportunity there or not since I'm not in the navy anymore but that's that's that could be an option i mean i would check i would check with uh naval personnel and and see if that's even an opportunity for uh conversion into c t n so i but, think uh, it, it, yeah, it, go, go it
0: goes without saying that 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 uh that those years uh, we pretty, pretty, um, informative to who you, you know, who you became. What did you, what was your transition? What did you, you know, contemplate doing? What did you want to do? And we do have people we know that they come to the show and come to our events that are in the military and looking at, you know, at their last couple of years, like what tracks they need, they need to lay and where they need to go. And you sort of referenced a little bit already. Take experience, get some certifications, and you come out. Any other sort of advice, in especially the context of what you chose to do in getting out in 2017. In
1: so, so what well, one of the things I did make sure before I retired from the Navy is I completed both my college degrees. I did my bachelor's while I was on active duty, and I did completed my master's right before I retired, because I knew if I had at least those two completed, it would even open up even more doors for opportunities in the civilian workforce. And, it, and when I was transitioning, I, I was fortunate to have... Quite a big network of people that have already gotten out, so that kind of helped me uh, land on my feet pretty quickly as I was transitioning out. So I, I went into doing um, risk advisory type work for one of the big four uh, consulting firms, and I went out and did that for over almost two years, and that was a really eye-opening experience.
0: Yeah, I, I bet it. I bet it was. In a little, a little different environment than uh, the, the the Navy environment, I suspect. Absolutely. So okay, well, let's talk then about uh, you know about these these next couple of years and you know leading up to to, to what you're doing now. And and where did OT? Because I know I know now you're you know you you um, OT is is part of your you know your lens. When did OT? If going all the way back, you know, were you, were you exposed to operating technology, cybersecurity concerns while you were on active duty? Uh,
1: yes. Uh... Especially, uh, I think a really big exposure to OT was when I was stationed on a ship. I was, when I was in Japan, I was stationed on a, on a cruiser, and I was uh, exposed and had to learn in depth under had had an under- in depth understanding of how the OT operations worked. I mean, it wasn't referred to OT, but it was all control yeah. systems. I was surrounded by current control systems all the time, from our engineering within our power plant to our our um reverse osmosis for uh, uh, creating um fresh water from salt water to driving the ship so i mean it's 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 all around you all the time and then when i was a project officer i was i actually had uh, more exposure to ot and actually worked on the ot related project so that was very helpful And it gave me the experience. So when I transitioned out of the Navy, I I had that experience. I completed my SANS uh, 410 course and then uh, I got out and I was working for uh, one of the big four actually doing uh, OT uh, cyber risk assessments. And then ended up actually doing a very large uh, project uh, focused on vulnerability management for OT. So that was great. So what are you doing now? So now, I mean, I've been working on gaining the experiences doing uh, CISO type work, uh, doing uh, security management, uh, standing up uh, all the governance that's required for organization, meet compliance for that are associated with uh, a lot of uh, DoD contracts, and also focused on um, other compliance programs so it's it's a lot very tedious it's a very slow process of documenting processes that are done every day but weren't documented before and i, I don't want to get it too far ahead but i mean that's kind of like really my role now but also i do security cybersecurity or system security engineering and with, as a system security engineer, I am also focused on product security and designing secure systems that are sold to our customers as, with our product. Our products are primarily focused on air traffic uh, management systems.
0: Okay, so you know, I, I think it's it, it sort of we're at the, it, the phase where I, I like to ask, you know, various probing questions. Where do you think we are on, you know, this? Is like, Big area products secure by design. Um, where are we as an industry on this, from your perspective? You know, producing things to begin with um, that are, you know, they're secure versus trying to fix them later.
1: I think uh, we are in the very beginning of uh, getting manufacturers to move into that mindset of doing uh, or building uh, secure products or products secure by design. I think there's been a lot of times where. They just get the, we've just gotten the product out there to the customer to satisfy the operational need. And then the security has been the afterthought. It's like, Oh, we'll go back and fix this later. And now the demand signal from based off of what we're seeing out of uh, the Biden administration. And also within CISA is we are, we have to, we need to stop doing that. And we should be designing our products secure out the box and not, and, you know, I get it why it wasn't done previously, because, I mean, there's a cost associated with, you know, designing secure products. And if it's not built into that software uh, development uh, lifecycle, it's 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 an afterthought, even though it's been taught for years. You know, it's it's part of one of the domains for the CISSP, uh, you know, as far as I understand. I mean, I <laughs> yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, Derek. <laughs> But uh, I, I think it has been
0: talked about for a long time. But as you say, it's been a profit, not been a profit center for sure, or seen as a, a potential, well, well, you know, loss of, of money. Uh, you know, I, I think I think people haven't felt they were they were compelled to do it either by regulation or by customer demand, and so they didn't do it. It does seem to be a lot of progress. I, I wouldn't. I don't know that I'm in a position to give a scorecard. But I ask everybody, you know, I run into and, you know, it's it's somewhere optimistically getting better, I think, is the, the average score of, you know, nobody's going to give it an A, most people not a B. But we're no longer where we were 10 years ago. And there is a concerted effort or there are certainly efforts at many companies that are IoT devices being manufactured by unknown manufacturers, clearly with nothing going into them and, no you know, no no thought whatsoever going into them. But but the. The, certainly the mainstream recognizable brand companies are doing more than they ever did before in this area.
1: Absolutely. So there's, there's a lot more focused on, you know, companies trying to address this with their products. And there's a lot more companies now that are, are CPE numbering authorities that have their own product certs that are actually reporting on vulnerabilities that affect their products and proactively trying to correct them. Uh, I mean, the one that I could probably point out most from doing the ICS Advisory Project would be Siemens.
0: Well, let's talk about the good segue. I was going to ask you about your your passion project. Um, tell me about the ICS Advisory Project and how it came about
1: and, and uh, what you're doing with it. So the ICS Advisory Project came together based off of the experience I had when I worked for one of the when I was doing uh, cyber risk advisory work and assessing, uh, OT, if you will, there are different types of ICS systems, the DCS, GATA, uh, even when I was doing, facility facilitated control systems, uh, really that was on more government contracting side. And the problem that I found was the ice, a lot of the asset owners didn't, that didn't have a way to track, uh, vendor product vulnerabilities that were being used in their products uh, or not products in, in their environment. And <laughs> even if they had acid inventory, they weren't really using CISA's uh, website per se, even though we would we'd point them to that. And we would leave behind like artifacts, such as like a spreadsheet with the CVEs that we know that affect their systems. But that's just, a, that's, that's a snapshot on time. and And it doesn't really help prioritize, you know, what they need to address first. It's just like, here's a list. Uh, it's up to you from there. And and I thought there's a better way of doing this. So over a few years, I figured out, you know, how to clean up the, the, uh, the SysICS advisories that were, that are released as HTML. And I broke them down into individual fields that allows you to quickly prioritize, you know, the vendor product, uh, that associate with your environment, uh, the CVE, the CVE severity, the CVSS score, the CVEs that are associated. And then I started looking at, you know, from a researcher perspective, I mean, it would be kind of good to look at how these advisories break down by critical infrastructure. So I broke all that out. Uh, so those were like the initial uh, dashboards that were created to kind of make it very easy for, these different uh, use cases or users, if you will, to use that data for their environment, and that's really how the ICS advisory came to be. It's it's launched in February of 2022, and we just had one year, and it's it's been more successful than I ever thought it would be. It, it was it was a low cost effort that I did. With, low code no code and it was it was fun and it still is fun it's more time consuming now because there's 20 different dashboards but
0: yeah that's the nature of that sort of beast is not it but it's um i i think it's interesting in in my 25 years of entrepreneurship the things sometimes the most planned thing doesn't necessarily lead to the biggest success and something that is um there's passion involved and just sort of like they moved along and it evolves and it bubbles up and people are like, oh, wow, what a great plan. Like, They only knew how this just came about. It just it just <laughs> organically grew. You know, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting how I don't know if there's a there's a pattern out there, but um, the passion certainly uh, comes across. I mean, every time I talk to you about this, it, it you know, I know this is something that you, you've put a lot of, uh, of yourself into. Um, but I've heard from others, too, that it's just it's valuable, you know, and useful. And so that where that sort of meets up some of these personal passions and energies and people say, hey, that was great. You know, there's opportunity there for sure.
1: Definitely. Definitely. There's there's a lot of different uh, uh, opportunities. And I think there's more use cases to be discovered still with uh, with the ICS advisory project. Um, uh, I think when I release my next dashboard, I think it will really uh, give you uh the users even more uh capability to prioritize i'm pretty excited about that
0: (laughs) i i'm a big believer in this i mean going back to you know my military days and our the very first cybersecurity business that i was involved in founding it was all even then the premise was we've got there's a lot of information available but what you do with it and who needs to get what information making it actionable was was everything well we've I don't know the amount of data or information that was available 25 years ago. It's gone. What, what? What? It's it's grown exponentially, right? We have more data and more stuff available. Well So what if we don't know what to do with it, or we don't have the means to do something with it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the I the ICS Advisor product dashboards are are my interpretation of like I th- what I think users are user data points or data points that users are looking for. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's might be the best way. I mean, users could take and export certain points within the data set and, and build their own uh, graphs and charts and Excel if they want, or they could build their own uh, data lookers, uh, data looker studio dashboards and Google for themselves with the, with, with the data set for, their, their uh, use cases. Um, I mean, there's a lot of flexibility in it. Uh, but I mean, I think the one of the things that what helps with the ICS-based product is that people don't have time to do that. I mean, it's, it's available to them, it's free. It's just, it's a resource for them to go to and use and and take advantage of.
0: Yeah, I think this is a great example for any of our listeners. You just, you didn't deliberate it and set up a whole team. You just started it. You just started creating it with your personal time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did and I, I have collab- I have collaborated. I, I can't take away what the efforts that would, were contributed uh, within like the past year from people from different parts of the world uh, working on you know developing a separate data set just for the ICS uh, asset type dashboard that breaks it up by Purdue Mile for the ICS advisories. I think that was a very helpful data set to create and dashboard that provides a um, opportunity to educate new uh, cybersecurity professionals to understand. It's like, okay, here's this ICS advisor. What is it really talking about? Is it talking about a, uh, and what is that vendor product? Is that a PLC, HMI? Is it a data historian? Uh, Is it a, you know, what kind of, or different type of field controller is it, or is it an industrial switch? And by identifying it and then kind of, associate what where it would exist within the purdue model uh it gives them an opportunity to start to put it together i mean providing the definition uh, i just added the link to the videos that are associated with with the different device so i mean you can click on the link from the dashboard they'll take you to like the youtube videos that i identified that i think are best uh and you know it's very useful I and mean, i have to i have to do a shout out to real PARS. they they were really nice and said yeah you can use our videos and uh inductive automation as well was very nice and said yeah we have no problem with you using our videos on uh explaining uh, a specific ics device so
0: i'm glad you, you clarified that my comment was less about uh ongoing collaboration which is this this is a very collaborative community i'm not surprised you're is that you didn't deliberate and have a bunch of meetings you just started uh, Oh, yeah Something to be said for that for people who have ideas. If they've got the technical chops, just start, just start working on it. You didn't you didn't have a there wasn't a whole fanfare or a process to begin doing this. You just started going down the path of building what you would like to see, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I will I will go back and say I did during that two year period, I did kind of before I started, I kind of like wait and Is someone gonna like do this? It's like no one's gonna do it. I'm just gonna go do it, you know? Yeah. And I really kind of expected to kind of hear like the the naysayers of the community to kind of like, come out and be like, well, that's that's not really helpful or that's not great. And I I only got that from like a couple people that I tried to reach out to. Say, hey, here's this new resource I created, and it, one of the one of the kind of like quote unquote gatekeepers within the ICS OT community kind of just, like blew me off. But that, but I, I at first I was disappointed, but then I like took that energy and refocused. It, it was like, you know what? I'm gonna just make this better based off yeah. what he says. I'm just gonna just keep on working oh, on it, uh, and it was an, it it was it, it more inspired me. So, if someone has something critical to say. Uh, it, for me now, I just take that and redirect that energy in, towards improvement. That's awesome. What's your vision for this? You know, where do you think it, where do you think it goes? So. The ICS Advisory product dashboards and the C- CSV files that I post on GitHub are s- remain free. But I've had demand for the API, and the API, there's a cost associated with it. So I, am, I stood up a separate organization called uh, Industrial Data Works, where I will turn the API on as a subscription service for people that actually want to subscribe to the ICS Advisory Data that we've enriched that i've enriched over like the past year and they'll be able to have the opportunity and pull that data into their platform uh, i think that's really the next step there but the ics advisor track it itself is going to continue to maintain be maintained remains free i would like to scale it and actually move it to a different platform other than uh, google looker studio uh, i haven't identified what that next platform is going to be but uh, I think we could do we could do better with some of the the graphs, I think, and response time because it's a little bit sluggish. But because you're using on a free platform and there's a bit of restructuring I have to do on the back end because the back end is still running the same way it was from the day I set it up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's that's the rapid prototyping model right now. You've, you know, you're running into scale and, and it's it's grown and there's other things you're concerned with, but you got it off the ground quickly. And so I, I, I just am a big, big fan of that. I think that's pretty cool. What excites you about the future? Not just about the ISIS Advisory Project, but just in general about our industry. Um, what are you looking, if you peer ahead, you know, what, what do you think is coming that, uh, you know, people could get involved with or should get involved with or a- anything come to mind in that area?
1: Based off of, like, uh, what what I observed when we went to S4 in February, uh, I think I'm kind of excited to see the direction that SBOM goes, uh, Software Bill of Materials. I think that's gonna play heavily into OEMs, uh, manufacturers, and their responsibility to uh, knowing what's in their code, uh, what's in their products and solutions, which just all harkens back to secure by design. <laughs> this is all kind of coming full circle. Uh, but I'm excited though, because it's the direction that we need to go. But I think still we have uh, cultural challenges because within secure by design or or manufacturers that are creating products that are secure out of the box that have not currently uh, implemented that have to move their engineers into that mindset moving from, you know, quickly design build and it just operates, but it needs to securely operate. But then we have to have the whole, uh, security training piece like hey we designed this secure product this is how the user securely configures it out of the box or out of the box it's 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 securely configured already but the problem is the challenge is you know we could design products that are secure out the box but then when they go in the user environment it might cause <laughs> incompatibility issues based off of the user environment so i think that's also going to be a challenge. So I kind of went down, uh, digress there. But what I'm thinking and how I'm going to articulate this is that not everyone's on the same level of experience and knowledge for cybersecurity, whether it's the end user or the engineer. And then when you're bringing in a pro- new product into their environment, you have to have that in mind already with that. With that product like the documentation of how you're going to train the the end user how to securely maintain monitor and operate that product i i don't know if that's as mature as it as it should be and you know we could design do secure design and we're going to do secure design but you have to consider all those other it's considered a human factor i think that's what i'm trying to get at sorry for it took me a while to get to that point but
0: well you, you raised a, a number of good points it's you know it's not security for security's sake and and there's real missions to be achieved by this equipment and by the businesses that deploy the equipment and it's true there's going to be compromises in that and risk I, i'm I'm a big fan of this sort of measuring and understanding risk risks are accepted all the time by by businesses you know other risk categories are there's more mature practices around what we will or won't accept as risk this is you know an area where maybe there's more more work to be done less less widely understood by some companies but it's the same category it's measuring risk understanding it and uh, deciding where each tolerance is and you're right creating something that is ultimately the most secure device ever would be sitting in a room con- with connected to nothing with a you know with a locked door it'd be super secure but it wouldn't be able to do much and so it's like how do we find these these happy mediums and trade-offs and uh, and, and you're right it comes down to human beings working all that out right? not just the engineering of this software or this hardware or, or, or combination thereof is quote unquote secure. How's it being implemented? How's it being used? Can it achieve its mission? All those things, they, they, they do matter.
1: Designing a secure product with security capabilities. Great. I design it and sell it to a customer. Do you have the person qualified to uh, yeah. monitor and, I, and and perform all those security tasks? Or are you going to expect the person that's operating to also do all those tasks? And And that's, that's just, in my opinion, not realistic. Uh, and maybe that's where, uh, in the future as as AI matures, AI performs that function. And then just, it provides a message to the operator. It's like, you have, you have this potential security risk, uh, and the operator has to just be ed- educated enough to <laughs> accept or deny or deny it. You know, and it's, I, I, mean, I, there's a bit of that in, in, um, within other products that, we will do that i mean but it's it's i think it's just not mature and and i don't think it's realistic to put another uh more sense more sensors go flow more sensor data flowing to an operator or it has like a primary mission you know to fill that need that security sensor data needs to be sent to like a designated person that's the professional that's Doing cybersecurity, in my opinion, it shouldn't, but we don't live in that world. We live in a world where we have uh, operators that wear multiple hats and we have to like consider that as well. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a, I think it's a complicated problem. Uh, and it's some of it might be fixed through automation, but some of it's still going to require training a human being to be able to interpret what's being told to told them, told to them.
0: Yeah. Well, and I suppose that's in the end, that's, you know, as we wind up, that's not a, you know, that's sort of putting into words, you know, one of the questions. they Why aren't why we, we, you know, those of us in the industry, why, why is not this stuff been solved? It's a big problem. It's thorny. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's progress. I like, I'm an optimist. I think progress is being made. I know there's people out there who think, oh, my God, we've not, you know, they can look in the lens of 20 years and say we should be so much further along. And they've got some historical context that I might not have coming from traditional IT, you know, cybersecurity. And, um, but it looks to me like it's, it's, it is, as you say, it's complicated, but progress is being made.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I could speak from my experience from in the military when, you know, information security and information security training got, became mandatory on all, like when I was in the Navy, it was like in the early 2000s and it was, not widely adopted I mean, or it was supposed to be adopted, but, and then it, as it became mandatory and over years through slow, like annual indoctrination into cybersecurity or, or like information, information security over time or information insurance, 10 years later, when I was looking at it, it's like, wow, it, this is pretty normal. Everyone knows they have to do this. There's a little bit more attention to detail when it comes to security on the user, on the, the non cybersecurity or non security user. To follow these, you know, best practices, and it, but it was like a long process. It's a, it's, a, it's a cultural shift within an organization, and cultural yeah. shifts within organizations don't happen overnight. They could take years.
0: Yeah, well, I love maybe that we're maybe, maybe,
1: maybe decades. <laughs> sorry, yeah, sorry. Exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly, they're not measured in short in a short time, and they do take quite a commitment. Um, changing human behavior is tough. It's one it's, it, we don't like to change. You know, it, it really. It's part of our, our human nature, um, and it does take a discernible, uh, you know, long-term, usually long-term effort to make those changes. But it's interesting you talk about that that cultural effect within within the ecosystem of just you know just the Navy, and and yet yeah, we aren't there on the outside, you know, kind of raising raising everybody's cyber hygiene up to, you know, three more ladder runs. You know, it's where we got to get, right? Everybody's got to come up some. Does everybody need to become an expert? No. But everybody needs to come up on average from where they are, which is unfortunately still pretty pretty low.
1: I I think it's better than it was. I mean, if people bring up cybersecurity, people have a general understanding of what it is. But putting that into practice and knowing what to do, I think it varies. Or, by organization and it's only it's only is 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 embraced by the organization as as much as the leadership embraces it for sure and then they, and then they push that message down and and you know human beings tend to react to uh changes in um and attitude towards security based on consequences <laughs> yeah
0: it's consequences can be quite the motivator
1: exactly so i mean there's consequences in the military for you know security infractions. Usually, first time you know it's a warning and maybe verbally. Second times another warning but documented. And a third time you're going to go see the you're going to go see the commanding officer. So yeah, it's it's, well, it's not know, like that. it's not like yeah. The, go ahead. Yeah,
0: there's some tools available in that ecosystem. That aren't necessarily all available, you know, here. But, but there's there's analogs. Like, how is it done? Safety culture did get permeated, but it did take many, many, many years. It did get permeated into industry, and it took top down and repeated. And there were issues if you went, you know, if you went into the, sh- the floor without the PPE on. You know, I understand there were, you know, in those early days there there, there were consequences to that. So people started wearing their hats and wearing their protective equipment. And it, it it changed those signs. You know how many days since last incident. You know the number started getting a lot bigger.
1: And in, in the in the commercial side, and when you're doing work with with the government, there's regulatory requirements and regulatory requirements usually come are, are laws, and they usually uh, have have a financial impact on organizations. And uh, I mean that's that's something that uh, you know maybe organizations use as a tool with their employees, like going we do not follow this, we will pay a, a, a financial price, right? And then the risk, risk becomes w- real, really quick. But I mean, how do you, I mean, they have to, how do we, is, I don't know. I mean, communicating that to to the the, the employees with an organization, some get it, that really care about and appreciate the organization. Not everyone's gonna appreciate it, you know, the, the, the levity of that, you know losing contracts and then possibly layoffs because your company lost contracts because you're no longer (laughs) eligible to to work on those contracts, especially in the government side. It's pretty serious.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And those consequences can touch everybody in an organization. They can trickle all the way down if they're, if they're big enough, as you say. Well, um, Dan, thank you very much for coming on the show and for all you're doing and for all the the effort and work going into the, um, the ICS advisory project. I think, I think that's super cool. And I was I was delighted to see that Dale picked you as a as a worthy cause as he did us at S4 in February. That was that was super cool. Um yes. and um it's it's a it's a great project. And I've I've heard from a number of people that are excited about what you're doing there. So thank you for the, all the, the many, many hours uh, of effort that have gone, gone into that.
1: Thank you, Derek. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited to be on your show today and that was a pleasure meeting right. us for,
0: well, if you're up, if you're up for it, I always uh, like to end the show with uh, what I call the, the uh, Pivot questionnaire. Or what is called the Pivot questionnaire. I'm borrowing it from inside the Actor studio, a long run, running television show where the host James Lipton, who is now passed on asked all the famous actors and actresses for decades. He finished all the interviews with them with this same 10 questions from a French show that he'd borrowed, I guess. So I think it's, it's been out there for many, many decades. And uh, if you're up for it, I'll, I'll, uh, will end our time together. I'll ask you the same 10 questions. Sure. All right. What is your favorite word? Alacrity. What is your least favorite word? Unfortunately. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Uh,
1: creatively, uh, do, do data. What turns you off? Being told, no. What is your favorite
0: curse word? Huh. What sound or noise do you love? My cat's purring. What sound or noise do you hate? Is it someone in pain or suffering. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Musician. What profession would you not like to do? Counting. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
1: Welcome. You made it.
0: All right. I'm just wrapping up with Dan Ritchie, senior information security officer and senior systems and security engineer at Quintus Defense and founder of the ICS advisory project. Dan, thank you for all your years of service to our country and, uh, and now to our community through your initiative. With the ICS project. So, thanks again for everything. I look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: Thanks, Darren. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure.